So today we will be continuing our work through Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be looking at Hebrews 2 verses 5 through 9. So if you want to get your thumb in there, you're welcome to do so. So working through Hebrews thus far, we have come to understand that Christ is indeed supreme. He is supreme over prophets, over angels, and over all other things. We've learned that we cannot neglect the saving work of Christ without mortal danger to our souls. The saving work of Christ is accomplished in the incarnation, the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of Christ. We look forward to the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. Today we, we live in what we like to call an already but not yet world. Our salvation has been achieved in the work of Christ. God's master plan to redeem his creation has been accomplished. But we do not yet experience the, the freedom that we look forward to. We do not yet see our world totally subjected to the rule of Christ. Honestly, what we see is a world of decay, a world where wickedness runs rampant. Our world is not getting better day by day, working its way to, to happiness and perfection, but we can see the world falling apart even before our own eyes. And as upsetting as that can be, we can also know that the word of the Lord is packed with truth and hope for a world that has strayed from that truth. As we open our service and begin to explore a passage, again, it's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in all things we can trust you. We trust you as one that we know is good. We trust you as one that we know is righteous and holy and mighty. And we glorify you for those things, and we place our hope in you. We ask that our hope would be found in nothing else, not in our own strength, not in our own means, not in our governments, our law enforcement, our first responders, our militaries, that nothing else would we place our hope in besides you. And Lord, we do thank you that you have placed these government agencies, these law enforcement, these militaries, that you have placed them in the positions that they are. And Lord, we ask that you would help them to run righteously and to honor you in the way they discharge their duties. And Lord, as we worship this morning, we ask that we would grow in our hope in you, that we would grow in our understanding of your word and of your son, Jesus Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's look at our passage. Again, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. First, as we look through this passage, we should realize it starts with one of those kind of signpost words. We can look for them where it's like for or therefore or but. These aren't words that we can start a normal English sentence with, and these start telling us that it is depending on what came before it. Verse 5 said, For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And that is connecting us back to the previous chapter and previous verses. And I particularly wanted to point out verses 5 through 14 of Hebrews chapter 1. I won't read them all, but I'll read um, tail end of 13 and 14. It says, To which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? This passage is depending on, on our understanding that Christ is superior. His obvious and well-established supremacy from Hebrews chapter 1 serves as a juxtaposition, a comparison against the humiliation that our Savior experiences in the Incarnation. This world to come, which is subjected to Christ, is the one that was inaugurated, that had its beginning when, to quote again from chapter 1, after making for purification for sins, Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is the world that is subject entirely to Christ, the world where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That is the world that we now live in, but it's also the world that we look forward to. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has conquered death, but we don't yet experience the freedom that is coming. We don't yet see every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Christ is Lord. This already but not yet nature of God's kingdom today provides some really important underpinnings for our passage. We have no doubt about the completion of Christ's work in his incarnation, but we do eagerly await his return. Paul says in Colossians 1, 18-20, Of Christ, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All of that is accomplished. It's done. But we have yet to experience Christ's reconciliation of all things to himself. So we eagerly await for that world which is to come. So next the author starts to quote Psalm chapter 8. And he offers a bit of a kind of a curious introduction saying, it has been testified somewhere and this doesn't exactly inspire confidence. Like someone said something at some point. And the reality is the author 
of Hebrews here is not unaware of where Psalm 8 came from. He would have been well-versed in the fact that this was a Davidic psalm written by King David, but he, instead of bringing honor and glory to King David, which would have been quite popular, especially among the Jewish people that it's being written to here, instead of pointing out David's fingerprints on this psalm, he almost completely washes that out. It was set, someone said sometime, and then he emphasizes not the human authorship, but the divine origins of the passage. And this is what Psalm 8 says here that it, as it's quoted. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And then the author of Hebrews takes up again. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This quote from the Psalms and verse 8 of Hebrews 2 introduces a bit of a question mark for us. He's saying he left nothing outside of his control and I'm putting everything in submission to him. Whose control and whose submission are we talking about here? Under whose feet is everything put in submission? And if you're like me at first blush reading through this, the obvious assumption, oh, well, he's talking about Jesus. Um, but there, there is a double meaning here in this passage. The whole passage is certainly about Christ, as the book of Hebrews is about Christ, and our whole Bible is ultimately about Christ. But Psalm chapter 8 is particularly um, written to mankind. Because for the most part, this passage... We are focused on Christ, but he is focused on as the epitome of humanity, as man as he was meant to be. The rest of Psalm 8 goes on to say after what's quoted, you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. That language in Psalm 8 intentionally evokes the language of the creation narrative. Thinking of Genesis 1 where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Lord, by his sovereign grace, set mankind as his vice-regent over the earth. The earth was to be subjected to the rule of mankind, to humanity. And unfortunately, because of the fall, man was never really able to adequately fulfill that role. But now Christ has come as the second Adam and by the incarnation has perfectly assumed that role in our place. Totally God and totally man. 
And when we say totally man, man as man was meant to be. To understand our passage today in its fullness, I believe we need to understand this concept of Christ as the second Adam. Romans 5 gives us a great introduction to this, and we're told, starting in verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam was the archetype of humanity. And by his sinful actions, all mankind since has stood condemned before God. But at the same time, that didn't supplant the, uh, the first commands he was given. He was given the command to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue and have dominion over the earth. So we, are, we don't get off of that hook. We still are required to fulfill that commitment, but now it's going to be done imperfectly and will be done under the curse and by the sweat of our brow. Nonetheless, it is still a tremendous honor to act as God's agents of dominion on the earth. However, imperfectly we are able to do so. We still are responsible for these commands to be fruitful, multiply, and to subdue and have dominion over the earth. Psalm 8 praises God for the grace, that is, for the unmerited favor that he has shown to mankind. We, more than just about any of God's other creation, have given God warrant to completely ignore us. He is, we have given God more than enough reason to want to completely blot us out from the history books. But he has sworn that he will not do so till the end of things. God has instead chosen to be mindful of us. Who is man that you are mindful of him? He cares for us and he shows us grace. And grace is that unmerited favor, that undeserved love and compassion that God shows toward us. And more than that, he also still sets us as the vice regents over his creation. We were created to tend and rule over creation as God's agent, but in the fall, our ability to do so was tarnished. We lost our capacity to rule as we should, and as such, we don't experience the fulfillment of that commission. To be thwarted in achieving your life's purpose is a painful thing. It would very easily be a cause for despair. Think of your life going back, and some of you have been blessed to recognize and realize your kind of purpose in life. Be like, I know that this is what God's created me to do. But to be left unable to accomplish that is 
exceedingly frustrating and often a cause for despair. We are commanded to follow God's commands perfectly. We are commanded to subdue and have dominion over the earth. We are commanded to love God with our whole being. We are commanded to love our neighbors just as we love ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I know for myself, none of these things do I see being perfectly accomplished in my life. I see daily my failure to love my neighbors as myself. And I see daily my failure to give all the honor and glory to God. But praise God, we are not left holding this stick of failure going, well, now what? We're not doomed to an eternity of seeing our life's purpose remaining completely out of our reach. And that is all because Christ has begun to set things right again. So verses 5 through 8 of Hebrews chapter 2 really set up verse 9. Verse 9 says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We may not be able to, on our own, accomplish the tasks that God has set out for us, the commands he's given us. But praise God, Christ has accomplished them in our stead. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are broken, sinful people. And for our sake, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. We have to understand it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come. It was to man, and not just any man, but to Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we find the resolution of all of mankind's failure. All that we as corporate members of mankind have failed and been unable to accomplish because of our own weaknesses was settled in Christ. I love the age-old hymn, Jesus Paid It All. It's one of my favorite hymns of the church. When I was reading through it and listening to it, and that third verse says, For nothing good have I, whereby thy grace to claim, I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. That is the salvation that I talked about last week that we cannot afford to drift away from. Our salvation is that in Christ we find all we need. Our salvation is not that we can work, we can do, we can build up enough of a resume that God will accept us. Nothing good have we. We cannot come to God and offer him something he does not already possess. But we submit ourselves to him and say, I can't bring you anything good, and yet somehow you still have been mindful of me in my lowly estate. Our salvation is in Christ. If I stand and I claim that I have anything good outside of Christ, I am a liar. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 3, verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I met with my brother Miko earlier this week, and um, in our meeting, he brought that psalm to, to my attention, and particularly that verse. And just the fact we don't even have breath by our own accord. We awake in the morning because God has decided that we are still alive. The only reason we have any access or claim on the righteous work of Christ, the only way that mankind will ever see a resolution of Psalm 8 is if we see it in Christ. It's all because of his work. Because Christ was made lower than the angels, because he took on flesh and was made man, we have hope. Our hope is made certain by the fact that we see Christ crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. I don't want you to skim over the fact that Christ was made lower than the angels. If we were to truly understand what it meant for the eternal Son of God to become man, the way we live our lives would absolutely be revolutionized. Philippians chapter 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has ex highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what our Savior did to us. To hearken back to what we were told in verses 1 to 5 of Hebrews chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the next question is, how should we live in light of the knowledge that the world to come has been subjected to Christ? And that today we live in a world of that already but not yet reign of Christ as the head and glory of mankind. And that we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The simple answer to that question, how should we live, is that by the power of the Holy Spirit we live according to the two greatest commandments. That we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, and we love our neighbors as ourselves. So simple. Get out and do it. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but how we do that is where things get complicated. And I think the most important command from that piece that I read from Philippians 2 is that we do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I mean, just take a look at again at the attitude from the psalmist in Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
That is not a man who is reveling in the selfish, conceited glory that we as mankind are so tempted to. And as ones tasked with being God's vice regents on earth as the pinnacle of God's creative efforts, there is certainly an element of righteous pride. And that's good. We should take pride in what God has commanded us to do. God would want humanity as the pinnacle of his creative work to take righteous pride in the station that he has placed them. But that righteous pride of station, the honor we were to take in serving, caring for, and having dominion over God's creative world has been perverted in the fall. Instead of us proudly serving our creator, man wished instead to be served. Instead of caring for the world that God has created, man has chosen to just pillage the world that God has created for his own good and for his own personal satisfaction. Ultimately, rather than bearing God's image in the world by implementing his will wherever he puts us, mankind's instinct has turned to setting up his own images and implementing our own personal wills on any and everything that we can. We try to place everything in subjection to ourselves instead of seeing everything placed in subjection to Christ. Paul warned in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days there will become times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And much to my chagrin, I see that at work in my own life way up more often than I would like to. I see the sin that so easily entangles tripping me up way more often than I would like to. And the antidote to that is humility before the Lord. A proper humility of heart before the Lord begins with the knowledge of the creator of the universe. Learning that God the Son who exists internally was made for a time lower than angels taking the form of a servant, that because of the suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor, and that by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. And before, this was just a bit of an aside, but before we get too wrapped up in that word everyone, um, I promise, Lord willing, that I will be dealing with that word everyone somewhat next week. Um, well, not next week, two Sundays from now. But for now, just understand that the word everyone here is only all-inclusive as it re relates to those who are in Christ. It's only in relation to those whom God has called. But back to what I was saying. Brothers and sisters, we hold no legitimate claim on the attention of our Lord. We have no right to God's attention in and of ourselves. 
that God could have just acted as a watchmaker who simply wound up the world and let it go unhindered henceforth was certainly within his capability and would have cost far less. Our answer to the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? The obvious and implied answer is that we are nothing. But God has vested us with value. God has seen fit to invest himself in our world. He created mankind as bearers of his image in creation. He has sent his son and has preserved his word that we might know him and have a relationship with him. That the God of the universe would go to such lengths should humble even the most prideful heart. None of us can stand and say, I am saved, I am good, because I am good. I am saved because God saved me. I was drowning and God pulled me up from the depths. I was dry bones and God gave me life. In humility, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to join me in daily looking upon our crowned Savior, ever looking forward to the day that we might see everything in subjection to Christ and that we might be restored in our ability to serve him as we were designed to do and that as we are seeking that restoration that we do everything in our power to live as ones that God has been mindful of even though we don't deserve it. This would be to our benefit and most importantly, this would be to the glory of the one who created us. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we find all our worth and all our value in you. If we do anything good, it is by your glory. If we wake up in the morning, it is by your grace. And Lord, we pray that in all that we do, that we might glorify you, whether in word or in deed, whether in thoughts or in action. And Lord, we pray that we would daily be motivated by the humiliation of Christ that the eternally existing God the Son, member of the Trinity, would take on man's flesh, that he would be born as a servant in a stable, that he would not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but that he would lay that aside for your purpose of reclaiming creation for yourself. Lord, may we find our joy in that and may we glorify you in all that we say and do. Lord, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you that you have preserved your word and revealed yourself to us. That you did not just wind the world up and let it go and as we have made a mess of things, you didn't just leave us to make a mess of things, but that you have sent your Son and given us your word that we might know you and follow you. And Lord, that we would 
take advantage of that. Spend time in your word and that our hearts and minds would be conformed to the likeness of Christ by your Holy Spirit. Go with us this week. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.